said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. I'm sitting here at uh, the kitchen table of Eric Berkowitz. Uh, pronouncing that correctly? Correct. Okay. Any related relation to David Berkowitz, the son of Sam? Yeah, he's a cousin. He's actually a nice guy. He's just misunderstood. He, it's, it's, <laughs> he was quiet. It's a, a quiet. It's, he was a. He's a. His mother loves him. Let's kept to like himself. Yeah, he kept right? to himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Eric is uh, a lawyer, uh, yes. not practicing at this point. You're devoted entirely to sex and punishment. Is that right? Uh, I'm practicing the way that most lawyers want to practice at this point. I've I've stopped being a hatchet man for large corporations and started to represent a lot of people uh, who actually need help. Oh, so I'm nice. doing a lot of pro, pro bono work and doing a lot of work for... Uh, you know, the underprivileged and sex does come into that fairly regularly. A lot of victims of sexual abuse. Uh, but my main avocation these days is writing and, um, that's more than full time. All right. Well, when I say you're de dedicated to sex and punishment, I don't necessarily mean the activity so much as the book, uh, sex and punishment, 4,000 years of judging desire. Uh, came out when? It came out uh, about five or six months ago. That would be spring of 2012. Right. Uh, the release of books these days isn't quite as clear as it used to be. It came out on Amazon for a few weeks, and then it was right. released in America, then in England. So let's say spring 2012. So just, yes, mm -hmm. and it's late summer now. Yeah. Um, uh, people love the book. Uh, Tony Perotet, who's an author of several books and an old friend of mine, actually, said it's rare that a book so well researched and provocative is also so downright entertaining. You have to you have to imagine this with an Australian accent. Tony's Australian. Sex and punishment will have you gripped and fascinated and sometimes laughing out loud at the way legal systems over the millennia have attempted to regulate mankind's unruly carnal desires indeed yeah and then this other guy uh christopher ryan i haven't heard of him he said uh eric berkowitz has done an excellent job of showing just how far from certain any of us should be that we really know what is normal or ethical when it comes to sex yeah christopher ryan did me a real good turn because i contacted him out of out of no place because uh, he had written this book that had done very well called Sex at Dawn. And my goal, frankly, was to follow the same path as that book because it had resonated. Here was a smart book with some serious scholarship that had resonated with a much broader audience than the, than the academic audience. So I contacted you out of no place and asked you to read the book and maybe blurb it, maybe not, depending on how you felt. And once you had actually checked in and given a positive nod to the book, uh, a lot of other troops began to line up. Oh, so, nice. Chris, I thank you. Well, <laughs> you're most welcome. That's a plug for you. Yeah. You're most welcome. Yeah, you sent me an email uh, not too long ago uh, mentioning that in, in the email. You said something about how um, 
you would be uh, you would sort of pay it forward when people up and comers came to you. And I thought, wow, you know, I've gone from being the angry young man to the, you know, wise elder in about six months. It's (laughs) depressing. And it happened right around my 50th birthday, too. I don't know if I can take it. I don't think I'd like to be a wise elder. I think I'd like to remain an unruly youth. But the years take their toll on both of us. Unruly elder, I guess, is what we are. So, um I have to admit, I didn't read the whole manuscript. I read, uh, well, this was a year ago or so, I guess you said. Maybe nine or ten months, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I read enough to to uh, be really impressed by the writing and the, the level of detail. Uh, how long did you research this book? And there's a lot of work in here. There was a tremendous amount of work, although it, it's not like digging ditches or, yeah. or you know, whitewashing fences. It was work. It was a matter of following trails and giving myself the chance to delight myself right. with uh, new and interesting things. Altogether, the work on the book was probably a thousand and one nights let's say three years yeah it's soup to nuts it's a good way to look at it yeah, yeah. i i did most of the research in la uh where i'm from hmm. i became one of those crazy people who hangs around li- libraries uh i was at the ucla research library for a long time got hmm. to know everyone there did a lot of work there. And then I had the good fortune to live in Paris where I took all the research that I did and put it together and wrangled it and made a manuscript out of it. So off and on three years. Nice. Yeah. You know, you make a good point about the the work of writing. Uh, here we are. We're two writers. I think we can, we can uh, opine on this. I hate to hear writers whining about how hard their work is. Can we use four-letter words on this program? You can use whatever you want. Fuck them. Yeah, it's uh, it's bullshit. you've, you've, You've got... The opportunity of a lifetime to follow trails. Right. To delight yourself, to look, to be amazed... And that's a gift. And, and someone presumably we're fed, we're healthy, we have a roof over our shoulders. Yeah. This is I good. mean Dostoevsky or somebody like that, you know, maybe he didn't, but you know, presumably He's a greater man than me. Yeah. <laughs> presumably uh, you know, someone gives a shit what you have to say. And that's that's the sort of assumption behind writing anything. And if you're in a position where someone gives a shit about what you're saying, either on a podcast or in a book or in an article or whatever. Thank God. Yeah, exactly. Thank God. Count yourself lucky and stop the whining. Well, when I wrote this book, I had been published rather widely as a journalist and magazine writer, but not in a sustained piece of writing, Hmm. 300 odd pages. So there was always the wonder when I was doing this, is someone going to really give a shit? And thank God that I had the good luck to find a decent publisher and to find an an audience. Because I think there's a lot of people who write good things that don't get them read. And, and, sure. And I yeah. wish them well. There's a huge amount of, of just luck involved. Yeah, yeah just yeah. stupid luck. And Mal- I saw a thing, uh, Malcolm Gladwell did a big think interview, and he was talking about that, about you know how the, the amount of really good writing out there is so much greater than the amount of writing that hits a nerve, that gets popular, that you know people tell their friends about. And that's random. How do we yeah. know? Yeah. I yeah. mean, your book dealt with issues largely uh, so outside the frame of reference of most people, which is prehistorical issues, issues at the cultural roots of our. You know, th- that could that book could so easily have been written off as academic. And then the academics would hate it because you're not 
on a university faculty. So there's right. always that risk. Right. And so for me, when I wrote this book, the kiss of death for everyone that I talked to is, well, you don't want to make it academic. Hmm. Uh, so I, can yeah. I riff on that? For sure, a sure. Yeah. The notion when you're writing a serious book, and the word serious not meaning humorless, but a book of actual effort and, and consideration of nonfiction, for guys, I, th I could speak for you as well, in our position of trying to find an audience where publishers, agents, and publicists undersell the audience and think that the audience isn't ready or interested in anything other than uh, tits and ass or, or some sort of very, very formulaic police stories. So I found myself, when I was putting this book together, wrestling between twin identities. Is it going to be salacious because the word sex is involved? It's the first word of my book. It's the first word of yours. Or is it going to be academic and thereby sent to Siberia right. uh, where it'll be published maybe 12, 1400 copies and be peer reviewed? So I, I had a lot of advice, a lot of free advice from a lot of people. One person told me that the book would do well if I turned it into wanking material for 15-year-old boys, to which I responded. <laughs> was uh, this an editor? This was uh, an agent everyone's heard of, actually, uh -huh. really? uh, who said, I can sell this if you make it what a teenage boy would want to read when he's by himself. And I said, that's not the book. I mean, and she said, well, you don't want to be academic, do you? I said, well, I guess not. I would like to be believable, right? but I would like people to actually accept it as true to have some credibility. But I think there's got to be some place between Playboy magazine, wanking material, yeah. and a PhD thesis. There has to be something in between those two. Right. So uh, the challenge of this book was finding a tone, finding a tone of voice where the audience isn't undersold is is respected that they that there is an audience that is curious about these things uh in a way that's not necessarily so salacious and um and it would want to be interested in something that actually has some research behind it and newsflash to that that agent 15 year old boys are not reading when they wank these days <laughs> you know, very few of them yes, are interested yes, you're in reading. Right. Maybe yeah. 15 year old girls, but the boys hey, are. I've got nothing more visual. 15 year old boys. I was one. Hey, uh, me too. And wanking is what they do them. best. So, yes. yeah, I, I agree. Uh, so, how did you, how did this all start? What you were, you were a corporate hatchet man, and uh, one day you just said, enough of this. I want to write about. No, there were what? a couple of years in the, in the desert between that. Uh, I was a practicing lawyer in L.A. representing entertainment companies and things like that. And I guess hatchet man is a harsh term, but it's true. They sick their lawyers on their you know opponents. Uh -huh. And then I've just like yourself, I'm sure I've always written. I've always written a lot. Right. And uh, my circumstances changed so that I could make some decisions about my life uh, that I had been postponing. And what I did at age 46, I guess, uh, was leave the practice of law and get a master's in journalism yeah. from USC to sort of reorient myself and, 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 be, and start the process of really writing seriously. So I did that. And that was a, a switch. And uh, I started publishing very quickly in magazines and newspapers. I worked for the Associated Press, et cetera. And then... Um, 
I wrote an article having nothing to do with sex, but having to do with corruption, uh, judicial corruption, Mm -hmm. which got me into a lot of trouble, which struck me as a good thing. Uh, I wrote an article for the LA Times Magazine exposing payoffs amongst private judges. And in in LA? In LA and throughout California. That piece got a lot of interest, and it also got the interest of my editors uh, at the newspaper who were no longer having happy having me work for them because I had managed to infuriate everyone who advertised in the newspaper. Really? <laughs> yes. You I would work. think that's exactly what they want. I know. Uh, journalistic Ethics 101 would right. say, speak truth to power. Right. Don't suck up to power. And that'll sell papers. And that'll sell papers. Except yeah. for this, the, you know, let's just leave that. They, okay. they were angry. The writing was on the wall. Right. And at age, whatever it was, 48 or so, I, I looked at myself and said, this, it's time. Step over. Do a sustained piece of writing. Hmm. And I realized that I had some kind of skill taking complex, just like you have with anthropological subjects with complex legal subjects and making stories out of them. Mm. So I set off to write a sort of anecdotal, lively history of the law. And a friend of mine asked me a question. This is the crucial question. This is the turning point. He said, Eric, what was the first law? And oh, I, yeah. I didn't know. I think I still don't know. But I began to look because it was an interesting question. And the first written laws we have come from Iraq, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, from about 2000 B.C., 2200 B.C. And I pulled up the early legal collections that were, have been translated, and fully 35% of them or so, maybe 40%, had to do with sex, adultery, bestiality, sex with slaves, bride price, selling your daughter, what reduces it. And it struck me very quickly uh, that sex, not necessarily just the act of sex, but the act of reproduction, families, marriage, all of that were very much on the lines of on the minds of the, our earliest lawmakers. Now, if you take mm. those, no, there's, there there was no history. Excuse me, there was no ceremony marking the end of prehistory and the start of history. There was no eclipse. These earliest written legal collections that we have, I guess they're reflections of laws going before then. And so I began to trace that out and and follow that and realized that one of the great imperatives of law, that is how we order ourselves, has to do with sexual relations. And it changes. What I found was the case in one century or one culture, if you jump a border, if you jump a century, what was the harmless fun of one culture is an abomination in another. So we're talking about what? Incest, for we're example? talking about incest heavily. In Egypt. Yeah. Incest in Egypt, in Persia. Uh-huh. Heavily uh, favored, favored among the upper classes only, or in a general sense. Uh, if you, we're going to focus on incest, I'm happy to. Uh, on the upper <laughs> classes, generally, see this to me. This is one of those ew crimes. This is one of those things <laughs> yeah. that 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 yeah. that I accept in my own mind is no one could ever have thought differently right. than I think right. now. Right, and it, I think feels so it feels innate, so innate, innate, and it's yeah. bad for the species to 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 mate with close relatives, etc. Yeah, but the level of cousins, as I understand it, geneticists have now determined that there's really no problem at the level of cousins. It's 
almost a statistically insignificant risk yeah. is, is what I'm finding. But Although what, Darwin married his first cousin and he? had a lot of sickly children who died young. So at least one. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, that but, I mean, that's anecdotal. Yeah. yeah. And actually, and they had been marrying cousins for a long time. So maybe that risk grows over generations. I, I don't know how. To the Persians, the uh, fluids, the urine, the fluids of uh, of an uh, incestuous couple were thought to have curative values. In Egypt, of course, incest was 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 built into the royal succession lines. Right. But by the time the Romans got to Egypt, we're now jumping thousands of years. By the time the Romans got to Egypt, uh, just before uh, the turn of the millennium, the turn of the first millennium, uh, incest was so pervasive that it, it had reached the lower classes almost completely. Really? And the Romans who found it repugnant had centuries to stamp it out. So incest is a good example of one thing that I was looking for. As I, ju- as I learned that morals, codes, and systems of punishment and ideas of marriage change so radically, I began to search for, is there any universal sex right. law? Is there sure. anything that transcends? Right. Which would, which would be, be biological. Yeah. Which think, would right? be it would have some biologically based. Right. And, uh, incest was the, was the trail. That, but if incest is a universal taboo, as we said, no one told the Egyptians, no one told the Persians, no uh, one told the, the Hawaiians, Inca. no yeah. one told the Inca. Yeah. And we're not talking about minor civilizations. Right. We're talking about major realized civilizations right. with international commodities trade. Did you find a universal taboo? I didn't. What about um, pedophilia with very young kids? You know, kids younger than three, four, something like that. Uh, I haven't found that could be, I have, that really wasn't spoken to by the law very much. Right. I mean, half of what's interesting about my book is, is what the law doesn't speak to. Right. And I began to realize that. Yeah. And so and with slaves, anything goes, anything goes. most societies have had slaves. Slaves, part of the job description of slavery is to satisfy the sexual, uh, right desires of your master right and so pedophilia itself is such an electric issue it's such an electric issue now that even the something that i discovered that a hundred years ago in california the age of consent was 10 as it was in most states uh that itself is you know a newsflash is shocking to most people because we in our hearts accept that it is wrong to take a young person sexually, especially someone on the cusp of yeah. puberty. I accept that. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. But at the same time, I do note that it hasn't always been forbidden. And to yeah. raise the laws from yeah. 10 to 12 to 14, the book describes in detail some of the craziness that went on of all the resistance. Taking a child, especially a child of lower classes, was considered really the birthright of an upper class male. Right. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine about this recently. He's got um, two teenage sons. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about this uh, 
I, I don't know if this is something that's just come to light recently or something that's been happening for a long, or, or you know what I mean? If it's, is these female high school teachers who are having sex with their, you know, students and, yes. and other teenage boys. And of course, you know, the joke is, you know, as you said earlier, we were all teenage boys and yeah. that would have been the, the best day of my high school career. But so I was talking to my friends, my friend about it. And, you know, and he said, well, you know, before I had two sons in that age, I would have agreed with you. And now I think, man, if, you know, if if a a woman in her 20s was having sex with, you know, the first sexual experience with my son, it would really freak me out. And and he said, you know, I want them to have the kind of experiences you and I had. And I said, you mean I don't like think anyone wants to go lots of frustration yeah. and and you know heartbreak because we got confused and we, so we got into this whole thing and it's like isn't it interesting that in every other realm of life from driver's ed to every other form of education we say okay an older person more experience more training more knowledge more wisdom will help you through this right you don't go out you know learn to drive by taking a car out and just driving you know and and see what happens but that's what we do with sex of education itself is is a dispensation of knowledge from the older generation exactly yeah but in sex we say that is absolutely forbidden to the point of criminality chris you hit on such a great point i am now reading i'm going to put in a plug for a book i'm reading now called sex sex panic in the punitive state by um, i forgot his first name lancaster and we now have and we're all living it uh this exaggerated overly sentimental non-existent sense of childhood and childhood innocence right like the america that a certain political dimension speaks of that none of us seem to have experienced right. and that never experienced this sense that ch- children are sexless uh, should be desexualized must yeah. be guarded from all sexual stimulation is 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 nonsense now yeah. does that mean that an abuse of power is a good thing does that mean that a teacher or an authority figure or a coach or a cop or a priest could abuse the sense of trust and power and take sexual liberties with young kids? No, that's a wrong thing. But at the same time, we can't react so fervently and so sure of ourselves that we want to make our children into some into creatures other than we are and other than they are. Right. The sexual urge is powerful. There is sexual energy between people of different ages. It's there if we deny it and we have panics over it and we start to hunt for criminals. Schools are now getting purged, just like daycare centers in right, the, in the right. 1980s. Need I remind you of the McMartin case sure. when Los Angeles, much of Los Angeles for 18 months, believed that that people that ran a daycare center were worshiping Satan and using children in there. It sounds insane. Yeah, but. We need to keep a little check on that. Your friend has a son. He has a natural sense of protection over his son. I have a 12-year-old daughter. The notion of someone taking liberties with her makes me literally sick and violent and all those things. But that's why we have the public prosecuting crimes and not victims prosecuting crimes. The notion is is that cooler heads are supposed to follow. So, children, teenagers, if Roman Polanski was caught... 90 years or 100 years before he did his his deed with that girl, he would have been congratulated more than 
prosecuted. He would never become an international criminal. Once their age of consent was raised, uh, then, you know, we have something called statutory rape, which is rape without rape, which is rape because of age group, and it is arbitrary. Is having sex with a 14-year-old girl in California worse than in Germany? And if you're 17, if the guy's 17, I don't know what the law is in, in California right now. You're, but. You're, you're, there are Romeo and Juliet exceptions. It's no. not as bad, but you're still a sex offender. Right. For and, life. Uh, for life. Yeah. That means you, try and get a government job. Try and get a real job. Try and teach. Try and teach. <laughs> try and get married. Yeah. Uh, really. Well. It, it comes up in the. It just comes up. It's yeah. a public Public record. So in Germany, having sex with a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old is legal. In California, it's a crime of the worst sort. It'll get you killed in prison. Right. Right. (laughs) And so we have to realize that a lot of our beliefs that we hold very close to our hearts, if not are arbitrary, are choices. And we have to show a little bit more mercy toward those who fall on the outside of our uh, beliefs when we realize that there, that there maybe aren't eternal criminals or people that were caught in bad, bad circumstances. Now I know that you and I have both been contacted by a guy who's doing a documentary about sex offenders. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I did the interview with him. I did as well. Oh, did you? Uh, Kevin yeah. Foley yeah. is his name. Yeah. And that process opened up a lot for me. I, I learned a lot yeah. about a lot of guys who, um, you know, there were examples of people urinating in public and they got caught for indecent, indecent exposure, exposure and right. then all of a sudden uh, they're labeled as the worst kind of perverts for the yeah. entire life. So law is clumsy. Yeah. Law is blunt. It's and, inexact and, it, and, and it's it subject can be quite to cruel. emotional panic. Yes. Which which it shouldn't be, you know, in, in theory. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, 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 someone else you and I both know um Maybe I won't mention his name because he might not want this to to be. He he told me this in private, but he um, his mother and father met at a Roman Polanski party. Yeah, <laughs> you know. He also about. mentioned that there was a several decade difference. Between his <laughs> exactly, and, but they were together twenty years, fifteen years, something like that. We and, could both agree that he turned out to be a really good a guy, great guy, yeah. a great guy, right? Yeah. Seems to have his head on shoulders. Yeah. Yes, I mean we 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 have to realize that there are people that fall out of norms, and if they fall out of norms, it doesn't necessarily make them awful people. Do you know that for well, we sometimes call them geniuses. You know, uh, yes, yeah. If they're rich, they're eccentrics. Right. <laughs> if they're poor, they're they're, they're yeah, crazy. I mean that. The notion now of interracial relations, which to me is a dead, Uh it's a dead letter. It was decided 40 years ago by the Supreme Court. Well, it's still very much an issue for a lot of people, which amazes me. But there, there for many, many years in the United States, any sexual encounter between a black man and a white woman, the jury was allowed to to infer. That is to believe off the bat that there was rape involved. Right. Because no white woman would ever consent to that. Yes. Right. And we had this notion of the boogeyman. We had this notion of the sexual monster, the sexual predator of the black man. And that's still the case to some extent that black men are considered to be unusually um, maybe too attractive to white women threatening to us, maybe too sexually potent. None of that's true. 
we are what what we are but as if if we're staying on the subject of panics the devil satan you know the boogeyman arises in several forms right someone told me recently I, and of, i think our friend's father just to close the loop our yeah. friend's father in a different circumstance having a bride who was under 20 him being in the, in the 40s meeting in patchy circumstances he he might have been thrown in jail sure yeah yeah slaves male slaves to serve food at the table wearing the shirts but no pants i don't know that you haven't heard about that but that would that wouldn't surprise me because just as we uh, have done quite a bit of sexual humiliation on our prisoners in the Middle East and in Iraq. Uh, good, good connection. Uh, yeah. As witnessed by the Abu Ghraib photographs, right. which are just the tip of the iceberg, I think. Yeah. We also, I did run across a pretty strong vein of research in you know putting my book together that showed sexual that revealed the sexual humiliation of black slaves black male slaves was part of the arsenal of of tools used by slaveholders to to humiliate them to the extent that they would consider to be uh, perhaps more docile as a result of it oh interesting it's funny i when i heard that story i didn't really think of it in terms of humiliating the men so much as getting off on it in some way the white people getting off oh I'm, uh, yeah. you know on the the sort of exposed genitalia of their slaves it's what so okay that brings me to the I, next i would not deny that that, yeah. that clearly seemed to be part of the package getting off on it of course but never ever discussing it as it as a sexual issue you know what no. I mean? The way hysteria was never considered the treatment of hysteria by provoking orgasm in women. Doctors never talked about that as orgasm. They talked about it as, you know, provoking a nervous paroxysm and yada, yada, yes. yada, clinical yes. and in denial. So um, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I when I went to college, one of the buildings was named after the great... Uh, sexual scold of the early 20th century now i can't remember i'm blanking out of comstock? comstock exactly Anthony my favorite comstock yeah my favorite what the hell was going on with that guy i mean what do you have any sense he, yeah, he's I the guy did who did quite a bit of work on him because there was a lot of liberation right there was like a movement you could buy condoms anywhere and then comstock came along and shut it all down comstock and the ymca uh were his underwriters actually uh where are we in time here the comstock, comstock the comstock act the comstock laws of which we still have some remnants we're the mid 1870s right okay. so his career really hit its peak uh, from the 1870s to about 1905, 1906, when he was considered to be kind of a buffoon. But Comstock is covered pretty heavily in the book because I found him to be such a clownish and diabolical figure at the same time. He was a true believer. Yeah. This is what you can't there's you can't find much behind his prudishness other than more prudishness. He was a soldier in the Union Army that took his whiskey rations and poured them on the ground. Yeah. Oh, he was he would squeal on his platoon mates. Uh, he apparently masturbated feverishly as a child and wrote about that, uh, <laughs> like feeling Freud. that he was possessed by the devil. 
Uh-huh. He uh, came back from the Civil War, became a dry goods salesman in Brooklyn, never did very well, uh, took it upon himself to uh, bust bars that were open on Sunday, uh, took it upon himself. He was a true believer against any real expression of pleasure. And he would finance these lawsuits himself. He, he did it mostly through the courts and then found the perfect mate if you will, with the YMCA, which was which were all which was also a temperance organization and a puritanical organization, they bankrolled him, uh, and his signature achievement was getting a federal law passed barring transmission of anything. I forgot the words of a lewd, lascivious nature through the mail. That gave the federal government jurisdiction. Right. If there's interstate commerce to seize it. And they he, they deputized the post office to do the seizing. And who was the postal inspector in chief? Comstock. He gave himself a, a lifetime tenure. He basically lobbied through his own lifetime employment as the chief inspector. Now, it was not only lewd and lascivious things, and he always portrayed it as a threat to children. In mm. fact, his main book is Traps for the Young. Right. Again, hysteria, youth. It just comes up in a hundred different guises. Uh, but at the same time, the Comstock Law was so broad, broadly worded that it not only took into account what we th- would all agree is pornography, it also took into account physiology texts. Uh, abortion information straight up medical stuff right Uh, uh, Margaret Sanger got into trouble with him right and And Margaret Sanger was 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 a risk taker nexus when the people that 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 he had arrested he had a fever and he had the backing of the New York Times he had the backing of Congress he had the he had the backing of he was saving our children right from not only sex, but from anything having to do with reproduction or even science. Knowledge. Knowledge. Yeah. Um, he also loved more than anybody to quantify his successes. Always talking about the 65 tons of vampire literature that he had consequence. He was, he was always totaling things up in tons and train cars. He, <laughs> he said he, he arrested enough people to fill 60 train cars. Oh, Hitler uh, would have been proud of him. Yeah, yeah. it's a kind of a grotesque, uh, but I don't know, it's prescient or what's the word that you would use? Yeah, it? Yeah. it anticipated the misuse of trains in the 20th yeah. century. Uh, eventually, his zeal uh, began to earn him a bad reputation and he was seen as a monomaniacal buffoon. But the Comstock laws empowering the federal government to step in, open mail, inspect, Seize. That 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 still is the case. Yeah, still I mean, look- that's wasn't that the law they used against Larry Flint? I believe it was interstate interstate commerce. That's yeah. where that's how the feds get involved. Yeah. He was he was a, a ridiculous clownish, devilish, highly adapted, successful person. Well, let's just say it here and now. Fuck Comstock. Fuck Comstock. God damn. Someone should have. <laughs> Someone should have, and we'd all be better off now. Yeah. So would you say, is is there any sort of thread running through uh, the sorts of people, the sorts of authority figures that are very interested in policing other people's sexuality? Is there is there like a, a frustration uh, that they're experiencing that makes them want to get involved in other people's sex lives? 
I think we could safely assume that with people like Comstock, there probably was. Right. And but, uh, Kellogg. And Kellogg yeah. and Graham. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Kellogg who bragged that he never had sex with his wife. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, um, I think often it is fear of the unknown. Uh, mm. And I think that's something you could probably speak to as well as I can. A lot of sexual repression that is one person or one group of people deciding to involve themselves in the sexual life of another person or group comes from as misplaced as it could be genuine fear that another person's sexual activity is going to cause harm to the group. And we look back on the Bible and in the Bible, in Leviticus, God commands the Jews, don't do as they do in Canaan and in the, and in the areas surrounding modern-day Israel. If you do as they do, if men lie with other men as women, if they commit adultery, then I will rain fire and brimstone down on you. Know, I will, you will be destroyed. Right. And, and I know that when the emperor Justinian, the Roman emperor, the 6th century, 6th century Roman Emperor Justinian began to really crank down on homosexuality uh, in a very, very aggressive way. There were earthquakes recently in Constantinople. There were some weather and uh, you know, seismic activity that scared the daylights out of him. Yeah. And, and he genuinely, I think he did. I think he genuinely did believe that unless he repressed homosexuality, there would be greater destruction visited upon Rome. The Vestal Virgins, this college of, of um, the highest priestesses in Rome, it was truly believed by otherwise rational people that if a Vestal Virgin, who were supposed to remain virgins uh, for their for their thirty year term in office, if they veered off the path, if they had sex, then that would bring defeat in battle to the Romans. That would bring famine and pestilence. And you know, I found I don't know how many dozen cases from the United States from relatively recent times in which judges, as they uphold sentences or impose sentences on people for private sexual activity, bring up Sodom and Gomorrah, bring up destruction of the society. So yes, on a personal psychological level, undoubtedly there's something that motivates people individuals, but on a group level, a lot of it comes from, I think just sheer ignorance. And hmm. sheer, sheer terror of the unknown. Do all societies police sexual behavior in some way? I haven't found any that haven't. Right. Have you? Uh, well, there's some societies in the South Pacific. I, I wouldn't say they don't police it, but I would say the policing is quite a bit more lax and more in, you know, maybe it's just a question of perspective. It's sort of more in keeping with, you know, my own personal perspective on what sorts of things make people happy. Mm. But there's definitely more of a live and let live approach. Now, is that live and let live from our own perspective or are they keeping to their own moral code in terms of themselves? You know what I mean? Well, yeah, it's been a while since I read the, the original research, but uh, Melanesians, I think, uh, they're, uh, I wish I could remember that there was a specific island that uh, I read some research where it relates to what we were talking about earlier, actually, where the um, 
where young people are initiated into sex by older people. Oh, going, yeah. I read the same work. That's by Gilbert Herod uh, about um, tribes in New Guinea. Uh, maybe we're talking about the same research. What I read was fascinating to me is it was believed fervently, and maybe it still is, that semen is critical for boys to oh, ingest yeah. in order to yeah. to make the puberty happen. Well, and it's a, a source of strength. It was also and masculinity, and yeah. masculinity, yeah. and also breast milk. A, uh, semen was electric stuff of the highest nutritional and um, how could I put it, energetic force of vitality in right. its most basic sense. Now. We would say that they were forcing homosexuality on young children. Right. That's not how they viewed it. They they had a different idea of science and nutrition than we did. It's all a matter of perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I was thinking of some islands uh, where the like boys are taught to satisfy women by older women. So like a 13, oh, wow. 14 year old boy, when he's ready to become sexual, an older woman would volunteer to teach him how to bring a woman to orgasm, how a woman's body works, how you make love to a woman. And so there are no boys, you know, Tutorial. stumbling around in yeah. the dark. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they're taught and the girls with the older men as well. Speaking of the girls with the older men, are you familiar with the situation in, um, with, with the descendants of the mutiny on the bounty? Do you know about this case? It's, Yes, I've heard about it, but help me. Strange legal case. The the guys who mutinied on the bounty. Mr. Did, Christian. Yeah. Right. Did it Clark, because Clark Gable. Yeah. they had found what to them looked like a sexual paradise. Right. The ship came into to port. I can't remember the name of the island right now. Uh, but the, the ship docked there for about a month. They were, you know, replenishing, doing repairs and so on. They reached the land of the Lotus Eaters and they didn't want to. Leave. Exactly. Yeah. And they were like, wait a minute, all these women are great. You know, they're sexy. They're, you know, everything's wonderful. Why would we want to go back to England? So after they had sailed and the, the captain, uh, what was his name? Captain Bly. Yeah. Was, Charles Lawton. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> captain Lawton. Uh, so that's they they mutinied. They went back to the island. And so now their descendants live there. A lot of them died uh, quickly before the British came back and all that. But the few who were left, you know, their descendants live there. And the island is under the control of New Zealand uh, legally. And so what happened was that someone recently said something in New Zealand about how the older men were having sex with the teenage girls and on this island. On this island. Uh -huh. And so the New Zealand sent some police to investigate and found that indeed this had been happening. They, they arrested all these men, took them to prison, ran a trial. But as it turns out, the girls testified in support of the men saying, this wasn't rape. This, this was, this is our culture. This is how we do it here. Right. But because they're subject to New Zealand law, it became a big issue. I, I don't know how. I've got to learn. Yeah, it's a very interesting it. case. Utterly I, fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So all societies in some level police sexuality, although it seems to be pretty much arbitrary, right? I mean, you f I'm sure you found many societies where homosexual unions are accepted. I did. Yeah. Um, although the kind of homosexuality that was decriminalized by the Supreme Court in the United States in 2003. Let's just let that sink in for a second. 
2003. That's yesterday that it was finally homosexual yeah. behavior was, was, you know, what, that sodomy laws were declared unconstitutional. The way that the court framed that, they said, you know, consenting behavior amongst adults in private uh, in Greece that would be considered repugnant. Yeah. To them, an older man, homosexuality, homosexual unions were between teenage boys and men in their 30s and 40s. Right. You're talking All about ancient Greece. The yeah. ancient Greeks. Yeah. yeah. So, and, yes. and that was considered an educational relationship as much as sexual, isn't it? Yes, it was a there. Well, it was a very delicate relationship in a hundred ways. But the boys would get involved with men for connections, for education, for advancement in society, and the men were thought to be following uh, the purest of desires, right? Because women were dirty, and uh, to be with a Another male was a more exalted form of intercourse? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could just simply say yeah. women were not uh, really considered valuable right. in any essential way, even reproductively. Uh, and it's still believed until, well, not now, but until quite recently and in many cultures still believed that the reproductive work, the biological reproductive work is done by men. Right. That women are, in the words of Sophocles, a field to plow. Right. And right. so you plant women, the seed that grows within the woman. Yeah, right? that they were basically toaster ovens to cook up our, <laughs> our, our, our own fully formed product. Right. <laughs> toaster <laughs> oven. I just looked at one because we're in the kitchen. We are in the kitchen, yeah. yeah. Uh, was there anything in your research? I, I get asked this question sometimes. I, I find it to be an interesting question. Was there any moment in your research where you just sat back and said, holy shit, I did not see that coming? Any surprise, any... You know, I'm sure you had a lot of mind-blowing moments uh, when you were when you were researching the book. But was there, and the thing that that pops out for me when I was asked that question is the um, the first uh, swingers communities in contemporary North America were these uh, World War II fighter pilots, and they were um, they had the highest uh, fatality rate of any branch of the military. And so it was these guys who, on base, uh, initiated the first uh, key parties. Wow. So, and the reason the well, interviews... they had nothing left to lose. They weren't going to let old moralities weigh them down? Well, I mean, there's that. You know, there's the existential uh, thing, that, crisis that they were facing. But also, in the interviews I read, it was so moving because what they said, I think they were talking with some of the women... Um, they said, well, you know, looking back, you know, you probably think this was all about sex. But what it was really about was, you know, our husbands didn't know if they were going to survive. And so by strengthening the intimacy among our group of friends, that put them more at ease. And the, the men felt like, OK, if I don't survive this. You know, I, I, I'm more confident that these guys are going to take care of my wife and kids because they've slept with her. They've got their own relationship with her that isn't mitigated by me. Or That's completely fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It was I found it to be very moving because I'd been reading all this stuff about hunter gatherers, you know, who also have, uh, you know, are facing death in a way that uh, we don't. Yeah. And, you know, and really brought it together as as individuals with 
property as much as groups supporting one another. There yeah. were so many oh shit moments there, 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 uh, in writing this book. You know, most of them were, I mean, there, there were quite a few humorous things, quite a few funny aspects, but really, if I can, and this is kind of a downer, but it's true, is I was really sort of astonished by the level of cruelty sometimes yeah, that, right. that, that we would um, exact on each other. I never really knew the level to which adultery was 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 con- condemned in the ancient world and 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 the the terror that men have of women and their reproductive force so much of what seems to be animating sex law is sort of male wonderment before women that we just simply don't know what to make of them <laughs> uh, just don't we can i mean and and, and they they're they're not like us you know it's not venus and mars it's something else and men i think you know feel to some extent robbed of the reproductive experience although none of us in our conscious mind would ever want to repeat it uh the 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 notion that someone else's desires are going to uh, have an effect on our own lives and that we have to do something about that. I just was raised in a very, very different mindset. And and it's taken a lot of, not work, but a lot of um, mental movement to get myself to the point where I could even begin to put, you know, understand what the other people are thinking. I try not to judge too much in writing the book. I try not to say tisk, 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 you know, things are better now. I don't think any. I don't think we're any smarter now than we were a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. Are just, we more sexually liberated? Is there a trajectory toward freedom and individual rights and all that, or or maybe not? I think we go forward and backward at the same time, hmm. honestly. And a lot of it is a question of definitions. I think we are more sexually liberated in the sense that. Um, you know, fornication, uh, no one even knows what that word means anymore, uh, but fornication is just two people fucking who aren't married, and that itself carried its own penalties for a long time. Those kinds of things are, are at least in the culture that we live in, ignored, as is adultery on a criminal level, ignored. But at the same time, with, the, with this notion that we were talking about a few minutes ago of this exalted sense of innocence, that we give youth and our, our, the, the fact that we're subject to panics, uh, that we're still talking about in American politics whether or not uh, a woman should be granted the right to have an abortion, even if she's raped or has incest. And all the, these old subjects pop up with alarming frequency. But I think everything being said, all in, we are more sexually liberated now than we've than than any culture I could think of, except our own in the seventies. Uh, except our own in the seventies, right? Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, you could find micro cultures. You could talk about aristocracy in the late eighteenth century. You could talk about I don't know anywhere near as much about about. Um, pre-modern uh, Pacific cultures as you do. Uh, and, you know, I think as, as we've just touched on, maybe they're sexually liberated in terms of our lives, maybe in their own lives. They, they didn't just even think along those right. ways. But given our own frame of reference, uh, given the Western frame of reference, uh, 
And given certain cities, certain neighborhoods and certain cities and certain states, we are probably more sexually liberated than at any time beforehand. What do you think's going on? I, I've, you know, we're speaking now uh, early September. We've just seen the Republican convention, yeah. uh, Democratic convention starting. And so that's sort of very, very much in the air um, at the moment. What do you, I'm confused. I have to say, I'm confused by what you mentioned, this right wing uh, urge, this, this, this hunger to control women's reproductive capacity. It seems to me to be a throwback to sort of Old Testament thinking. And, but, you know, this, this idea that life is sacred. I agree with that. Well, in a sort of general sense, but it but it isn't sacred. I mean, you know, we look at the way we treat animals. That's not sacred. We look at the way we treat prisoners. We look at the way we, you know, drone attacks oh, in Yemen and uh, yeah, Pakistan. Life is sacred until life. kids are born and then we don't feed them. Well, and also, and also <laughs> yeah. it's like you put yeah. them in jail for 50 years. At a time. Exactly. You know, and it's not even economically advantageous. So I, I don't understand really why. Other than just like, you know, we're not going to give up that last vestige of male power over women that we will control, you know, with these probes in, in the vaginal probes in Virginia. You know, there seems to be a very specific focused uh, energy around humiliating, dominating, controlling women in terms of their reproduction. And I, I don't really understand where that's coming from. Do you, do you have a sense of that? I don't think I'm, I, I share your sense of vexation. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm confused and angered by a, a lot of what I'm hearing. I think if I can offer this perspective, I think as the economy collapses and as a lot of people see their lives become less stable, they, they get angry right. and we see, uh, I think there's a lot of racism involved and there's a lot of classism involved to the extent that someone's taken something away from me. Right, exactly. But someone's then why would me. you want those people to have more kids? Why would you as a you know upper class white you know, right winger want to do things that assure that poor women have more yeah. unwanted kids. Hey, I'm not arguing with you. What you're saying is perfectly logical. But what what I think people are groping for is, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, some sense of how things used to be. Things used to be different. Things I'm, you know, the, the Republican convention was filled with these homilies for an America that mm. no one ever knew yeah. where things were pure and clean. And we have this sense that poor women read dark skinned women are fucking their brains out without consequence. And they're having kids and they're expecting me to pay for their kids. And they're and and it's just this sense of anger towards the underclasses, which is why everybody freaked out so badly when that law student, Sandra Fluck. Right. You know, I think Rush Limbaugh got such a hard reaction to that because she was a she didn't fit the huh. she was uh, white. Yeah. She was a white for lack of a better word, well-spoken, yeah. educated law student in Washington, D.C. Right. He probably wouldn't have gotten the shit that he got if he had been talking about, uh, you know, we can remember Bill Clinton baiting that rapper. What, right. what was her Just name? Sister, Sister Soldier. Yeah. yeah. I mean, out of no place, 
I think he was just throwing a sop to, you know, scared Southern white people. So I think a lot of this venom against the poor and against the reproductive rights, let's not forget your wife and mine are going to exercise their reproductive rights with money. If they want care, they're going to get it. If they want an abortion, they're going to get it. Women with money have always had the access all the access to all the health care that they would want. If their state doesn't allow it, you get it. What we're talking about in this whole thing is the poor. Right. Uh, right. We're talking about whether the government can and should take care of the health of those uh, who can't pay for it themselves. And that's really what we're getting to. So Sandra Fluck got all that shit from Rush Limbaugh and from the Republican Party when she said, I want to get subsidies for my abortions. For my birth control. For my birth control. Right. right. Thank yeah. you for that yeah. incredibly important <laughs> correction. Yes. Yeah. I mean, abortion now is, now, you know, covered in this. But I mean, I just don't get why someone for I, I should interview someone who believes this because yeah. I, I don't get why they would want, you know, you would think they would want there to be fewer children born to poor people because those kids are getting public assistance to a large extent. So I, it, it's a conundrum to me why they're doing things to assure that there are more children born to black or poor women, uh, just black and any other color. Complete nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. It's nonsense. Okay. So speaking of nonsense, have you seen, are you familiar with uh, James Prescott's uh, research into uh, he, he did a meta-analysis of different societies that are uh, in the anthropological data bank. And he wanted to see if there was a correlation between tolerance for teen sexual expression and um, the amount of time that mothers are in physical contact with infants on one side and the amount of violence in a society on the other side. Wow. No, I don't know anything about that. It'd be fascinating. Yeah. Did you, did, I mean, thinking back on, on the research, do you have a general sense? Are, are more warlike societies more sexually repressive? I haven't found that. I haven't found that at all. Uh, I have found a lot of, if you want to look at certain societies, uh, well, let's look at ourselves. We are warlike uh, in the 20th century. This is probably the most war-torn century humanity's ever known. Despite Steven Pinker's uh, claim that, uh, you know, this is the most peaceful time our species has ever known. But that's yeah. that's complete nonsense. I, mean, I, I, I think so, even, yeah. so I th- No, I haven't seen war necessarily have a direct correlation to sexual repression. To some extent, War unleashes more sexual violence than than peace does. That it is, we have this. I was just redoing for research on the next volume of my book about the Abu Ghraib situation, and there were a lot of justifications put out for our humiliation and rape of people overseas by our soldiers. And there's this notion: well, give them a pass. They're living under a lot of pressure. Right. You know. There. Uh, so to some extent, war releases now is that liberation and sexual violence i don't know what that is i I, provokes provokes sexual activity perhaps on a on a more widespread scale than peace does i don't i don't really know i don't know if we have enough data to really come to those kinds of right 
So this book has done really well. It's doing really well. And, I'm uh, gratified. Yeah. yeah, that's fun. It's fantastic. You know, I I uh, I've been working on this pitch for a TV show we were talking about yeah. earlier, and part of the pitch, you know, I I say I sort of scream at the camera that we are. At a tipping point, we're at a, a moment, a transformative moment in American culture. And I really believe that. You know, I think we're seeing uh, our perspective change at an accelerating rate. You know, the, the, the amount of the, the percentage of people who are in favor of same-sex marriage, for example, has gone from the low 40s to the mid 50s in a decade. You know, someone like Dan Savage has gone from being this fringe, you know, funny guy no one's ever heard of to a regular um, guest. To a, a mainstream on, voice. Right. And he hasn't and he sold out. he reject that. No, he hasn't yeah, sold out at all. Yeah. He's telling the same, you know, stories he's always told. And, and, uh, you know, I think he's going to go down as as a historical figure. He has stood his ground. And, you know, what is he armed with? The guy's got no PhD. He's not a former lawyer. He's not, you know, you and I are actually better uh, fortified in, in many senses. But that guy is so funny, so honest, so consistent. He's got a very sharp wit. And he's the he's one of these guys that comes along at the right time. He was a few years ahead of his time. And, you know, the world is changing. And you're right. Guys like Dan Savage rather than than I mean, he's a prankster, but he's a he's a prankster that the world he's seeming less and less. He's seeming like less and less of a prank of a prankster. Right. The years past. The world is adapting yeah. itself to him. Yeah. And, and he's he's fearless. I, I, I'm a big Dan Savage fan, as everyone knows. Uh, um, but uh what the hell was my point? Oh, you they were, were in a about transformative a moment. A, yeah. So you, with your amplified historical awareness and context, and lack of hair, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you think? Do you do you agree with that, or do you think it's it's just another moment? Is my sense that things are accelerating and there's like a a trend toward greater tolerance? I would agree with you. I would agree with you pretty enthusiastically. I think when you see, uh, you know, these counter reactions, they almost are exceptions that prove the rule. I think as a whole, at least speaking for the United States and Western Europe, uh, the trend is toward more personal tolerance of belief, of speech. There is strong counter reactions. I can name you 50 exceptions. You can probably name 75 exceptions. Right, yeah. But I do believe that we are heading in the right direction. And it's it's probably no accident that at the same time this sort of sexual revolution's happening in terms of uh, same-sex marriage, now there's I think that's being followed by the next wave which is an acceptance of polyamorous unions and, and different sort of configurations of relationships around that. There's also this discussion of atheism and, you know, more and more people consider themselves to be atheists or at least non-believers, you know, agnostics of some sort. It does seem that, that there's, um, you know, we're seeing the banking system is no longer trustworthy. The political system is no longer trustworthy. The Catholic Church is a bunch of perverts. You know, they've always been a bunch of. Perverts. Well, they always have, but they're exposed as such, yeah. you know, as the banking system has always been a bunch of thieves, you know, and the yeah, scoundrels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the fact that like all these different institutions, which, you know, 20 years ago, a lot of people believed were, you know, very decent people with the public uh, good at heart. 
it pretty much nobody buys that anymore. Yeah, I guess what was that book by Nietzsche, The Twilight of the Idols or something? Yeah, that, that, a, yeah. a lot of the eternal verities are, are kind of yeah. cracking. But, you know, I'm not the guy to ask on this. I'm sitting here in San Francisco. I, I, the degree of religiosity, the, the degree of religious belief in my country uh, always amazes me. And I... I, yeah. I I don't know whether that, you know, Obama got busted with that line of people clinging to their guns and their religion in hard times. I don't, I have a hard time explaining to myself, just like you do on these other subjects of how, why people accept re, at least a doctrinaire religion that is such self-evident horseshit that yeah. uh, I'm not against spirit, spirituality, <laughs> but to accept this walmart grade yeah. religion that we right. kind of <laughs> you know eat uh except I, it's not made in china it's, no uh, no it's homegrown you know that, uh, they, yeah. so i you know that itself um and he, you know for every religious leader who's exposed as a fraud and a and a pedophile and a and a and a, and a jerk there's five more to take their place i think that we have an urge for to be religiously centered but you know who's going to win i I don't know nobody we have a highly textured society and we're probably better off for that yeah all right well before we we wrap this up i I want to ask about the next book you mentioned you're already at work on that making people like me look really lazy (laughs) (laughs) um you know i stopped this book kind of arbitrarily if there was one criticism that i got from more than one person it's like why'd you cut it off you know around 1905-1910 one well there's lots of reasons one i was scared because i knew the 20th century was so big Mm, yeah that i'd I'd be at this for another three years and so close to home and so close to home and everyone has an opinion uh so i wanted this first book to be you know history if you will the next one i'm jumping into it uh pretty Head first. Uh, it, I don't know if it'll be called Sex and Punishment, but the ba- the same basic thing of of morals laws uh, up to the year 2012. Ah, so that will excellent. take into account the lavender scare, the homosexual purges that were just as strong as the communist purges, uh, World War One, World War Two, the sexual revolution. Uh, all the issues that are near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. And you, you're going to finally tell us if uh, J. Edgar Hoover was a cross-dresser? You're going to settle <laughs> that one once and for all? Uh, I don't know any more than you do. It seems like he was. It seems like uh, he, he should have uh, been if he wasn't. If you yeah. want to talk about repression. Exactly. Uh, he seems like the kind of guy who... Yes. Who, nothing against cross-dressers, mind you. It's Not more, the least. More against him. Well, listen, thank you very much. This is... Uh, we're Tons right, of fun. We're over, over time, yeah. but uh, you will... We'll just let it go. This has been wonderful. And uh, thanks for inviting me into your, your lovely kitchen. Thanks for having me. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.